Before we begin today, I have a special call to action for everybody listening. On July 10th, I will turn 34 years old. Now, 34 isn't special for most people, I know that, but for me it is. Ever since I was 10 years old and I decided that then Kansas City Jayhawk and future Boston Celtic Paul Pierce was my favorite player and Paul wore 34, that has been my lucky number. Because of that, this is my lucky year. So, I wanted to do something special. My freshman year of college, I was arrested with a couple friends for possession, paraphernalia, and a couple other related charges to using and distributing marijuana. Luckily for me, I am an affluent white guy, and that disruption to my life was very short-lived. In fact, it was eventually expunged my record. It's as if this never happened. And more than that, it never kept me from getting a job, uh, you know, a loan, any of this kind of stuff. The same can't be said for millions of black and brown Americans. The war on drugs is built on a foundation of lies. It is racist, and it has been used to disrupt the communities that our white American system has decided is undesirable. In the show notes, you'll find a link to a complete call for action. I would love for you to join me as a birthday present in raising $10,000 for the Drug Policy Alliance, an organization that seeks to end the racist war on drugs. Please go to that link and give me the birthday present of helping millions of Americans who've been unjustly targeted simply by being who they are. All right, let's get started with the episode. But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Welcome back to another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. This is episode 19. Episode 19. We are moving along. I appreciate the actual thousand of you who have listened. I say this a lot, and I'm going to keep saying it. I appreciate it. I, 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 I know that this is an important topic, but there are a lot of people doing it. So for the actual thousands of you who have listened, this is it, it really means a lot that you're giving your time to me. That, that's very kind of you. <laughs> I appreciate it. You heard my call to action to start this episode. Like I said, the link is in the, the show notes. Check that out. You can also see that on social media or my website, jshiffman.com in the news section. It'll be listed there. Uh, so that's, that's important. This episode is uh, a really cool one. It's one that I completely nerded out to during this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about this person. Her name is Barbara, also known as Basha. She made that very clear. She goes by both. Barbara is sort of her official name, and then she goes by Basha. But she wants she wants my listeners to know if you search for either one, you'll you'll find it, and it is the same person. Uh, Andraka Christou is her name. Barbara Basha Andraka Christou. She's a professor who wrote a book that is 
Uh, I, I almost want to literally take and smack some people in the face with it. Uh, <laughs> it's called The Opioid Fix, America's Addiction Crisis and the Solution They Don't Want You to Have. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I am a huge proponent of medically assisted treatment, also known as MAT. It's been denied to people for far too long. As my listeners know on this podcast, I only have one rule, and that is you cannot think that your treatment is the only way um, because we know that's not true. I mean, we literally know that's not true. The data is there. All of these different ways work for some. That being said, MAT and taking a harm reduction model of treatment is the most successful. And you'll hear Basha say that on this podcast episode. Here's the only only downside. This is my fault as a host. It's completely my fault. Basha did this interview outside. She did it without an external microphone. Uh, and the sound quality is not not good at all. It's just not good. In fact, I was really sad. I had to cut way more than I wanted to of this episode because the noise was so loud, which is disappointing because she had a lot of great things to say. I, you'll still hear a lot of amazing things from her, but there, trust me, what you're hearing is like 25%. I mean, she went, she went hard, and I had to cut a lot of it because it just was like you almost couldn't hear her over the noise in the background at certain, at certain spots. So that's my apology to you as the listener. I'm going to do a better job of that. Going forward, I'm going to do a better job of that, I promise. I've got a couple already recorded. For those of you wondering how this works, I actually, I'm recording this on Wednesday the 17th. I have another interview for this podcast in about two hours. That interview probably won't drop until the end of July, if not later, because that's how far out I'm recording right now. That's why a lot of people, we don't get too, too specific on current events because, man, at the rate this world is moving, something that's current today isn't going to be current in six weeks when this comes out. That being said, there are some topics that should stay on our minds. And um, <laughs> spoiler alert, there's another Black Lives Matter call out in the, the closing of this uh, episode. So, um, the, like I said, that's my, my mistake, my promise to be better in the future. Here's the unfortunate part. The, <laughs> the shout out today is from Seth Davis. Seth Davis is a basketball analyst and uh, a writer. He writes for one of my favorite publications, The Athletic, which is wonderful. Seth recorded this outside <laughs> without an external microphone as well. So those I don't have as much control over. You know, I am pressing for more of that from the shout outs, but they're so short that um, I have less control over what the how that's done. Um, but with the longer interviews, I do, and I, I am going to be better there. Uh, but Seth Davis is a guy who is, um, you know, like I said, he's a writer and, and analyst, but he also is an is a activist on, on really important topics. Uh, but he's done a lot of speaking in the past on mental health, and, and um, it was really cool to get him to, to record something. So enjoy both of those. I'm going to do one more shout out for her book because uh, I had to cut the part where she talked about the book in the interview. So one more time, and you'll get this in the closing as well, but The Opioid Fix, America's Addiction Crisis, and the Solution They Don't Want You to Have 
is the book by my guest today, Bajan Draka Christou, or you'll have to search for Barbara probably to find it, Barbara Andraka Christou. As always, there's going to be a link in the show notes, but definitely read it. It is, it's dense, but not in a bad way. I mean, it's dense in the fact that there is so much data. She knocks this thing out. Anyone who actually is open to hearing other opinions, this book will change your mind. I mean, it's, it's that good. She did a great job with it. So check out her book, check out the link in the show notes. Enjoy my interviews today, and I'll catch you at the end of the episode. Hey, everybody. Seth Davis here from CBS Sports and The Athletic. All during the course of the year, under any circumstances, I talk often about the importance of addiction and mental health and addressing these challenges that so many people face. And I know that that challenge gets even steeper during a time like this, all kinds of stresses and a lot of time on our hands to maybe not make the best choices. I think the most important thing is, first of all, to not be ashamed that you need help or you have quote-unquote weaknesses. Our weaknesses define us. Our weaknesses inform our character. They actually make us strong. And it takes a lot of strength to show your vulnerabilities to the world. So please don't be ashamed of any help uh, you might need. And then please get whatever help you need. Talk to somebody. Don't, don't keep it inside. There are plenty of people who care about you, professionals who know how to help you, so many resources uh, you know, we take things one day at a time. So don't be ashamed. Get the help you need. Get this out in the open. It's like anything else we deal in life. You sprain your knee, you break your shoulder, whatever you do, you go and you get treatment for it. It should be the same thing for addiction and mental health. I want to encourage everybody to love each other, empathize with one another, and help remove the shame and the stigma attached to addiction and mental health. God bless everybody during this challenging time. We will get through this together. That's a promise. Are you ready to take your hemp experience to a whole new level? Because if so, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Made. Their puff line of smokable flour is unreal. They meticulously source each strain from select partner farms to ensure only the highest quality product in the marketplace. When it comes to the entourage effect, nothing tops strain-specific flour. It delivers the full range of all the amazing effects of CBD. I can tell you because I use it myself. With 0.7 grams of premium full flour inside of each pre-roll, you'll be ready to maximize your personal summit whenever you smoke. So check out Mountain Made today and grab a puff. They're federally compliant with less than 0.3% THC, which means they ship nationwide. All right, I'm going to grab a puff and let's get back to the episode. My name is Basha Andraka Christou. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, Florida, and I research health services and health policy related to substance use disorder with a lot of my research focusing on medications for opioid use disorder, or as they're often referred to, medication-assisted treatment, or MAP. So I want to get into your work, obviously, but we always start on my podcast with uh, your story. Um, I was fascinated reading your bio that you actually, uh, your background is law. So if you could talk a little bit about how you went from that to pushing for something that should be ubiquitous in, in MAT, but obviously we're not quite there. And we'll, we'll talk more about that after, after your story. Sure. So um, it, it is a really 
interesting path, actually. As you're right, I, I did start in law. I was finishing up law school when I became aware of a friend who had an opioid use disorder and was in recovery through Suboxone. And this was around 2013. And I'd never heard of Suboxone. I didn't even know there was such a thing as medication that could treat a substance use disorder, let alone opioid use disorder. So I just started researching it a little bit on my own. And with my legal training to date, I mean, I was still a law student, but I really zoned in on those legal barriers that struck me as strange because at the time we were becoming as a nation aware of the opioid overdose crisis relating to pain pills. And I thought, well, this is really unusual that you need a waiver to prescribe this and you have patient limits and you don't have those things for oxycodone or hydrocodone or, you know, the, the issues that have um, actually led for a lot of people to develop an opioid use disorder. So I started noticing this dissonance between how pain was treated and how addiction to pain pills was treated. Most people I know who work in this industry um, have a personal connection that is nine times out of 10 themselves, right? I mean, it can be somebody else, but most of the time it's us. It sounds like from yours, you are that one out of 10 that it's someone else. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And I think that actually kind of gives me a, a slightly different perspective, perhaps, because since I didn't recover through one method or another, you know, I, I have in a way an ability also with my training to look at all the options on the table, as it were, with perhaps a little bit less bias. And, and I don't say that in a negative way necessarily, but, you know, sometimes what I've run into, especially in rehab centers or um, in outpatient treatment centers, there will be people who say, well, I recovered through NA or I recovered through X, whatever X may be. Therefore, I don't think MAT is necessary or important. And I'll say, well, but look at all this data here. Well, but it didn't work for me, right? So it actually, I think, helps me in some ways because I don't have that particular tie to one method or another. I'm really just looking at what is the data saying. I think you put that just perfectly. So I, um, I personally recovered through just my own, my own uh, work, and um, you know, I, I've been very outspoken on the fact that I actually tried uh, to go to AA and it didn't really work for me, which makes sense. I mean, my struggle was with prescription pills and cocaine, not really with alcohol. And, and at, at its base, AA is an alcoholic's, uh, you know, uh, treatment. I, I do, however, think that, you know, I'm, I'm part of this sort of growing loudest voices in the room that believes the right treatment method is the right treatment method that works for you. I mean, that is the, that is the, the basis of a lot of the work going on. I, I have a, a story that I like to tell about a guy who, so basically what you just described, he's a uh, huge in the AA community here and doing a lot of amazing work. But when I approached him about a project he's doing and, and they're uh, not going to allow people uh, on uh, MAT to, to uh, be part of the program. And I said, you know, that, that just, it's so dangerous. Why, why would you not do that? And he said, well, you know, I just haven't seen any data that shows that MAT works. And I said, that's, that's silly. And I showed him some data and he responded with, well, that's what they want you to think. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I've seen that as well. And, and I, I kind of understand it. There is the issue that a lot of the opioid crisis that we've seen today or in recent years is related to pharmaceutical manufacturers. And so, you know, I, I kind of understand that aversion. People on the one hand are hearing, oh, these bad pharmaceutical companies, they were um, misrepresenting and the efficacy of pain pills claiming they're not addictive. And then at the same time, we're supposed to turn around and believe another set of pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, I, I understand that, but it's it's actually just a very emotional reaction. If you get down to the data, it, you know, it's the data speaks for itself. Yeah, I, I so I tend to I completely agree with you, actually. And and I think what's 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 so worrisome is you're you're right. You hit the nail on the head that it really comes down to the fact that we are still going through a crisis that was in large parts created by pharmaceutical companies. And unfortunately, that uh, that fear has extended to even the uh, addiction model of a brain disease. And, you know, a lot can be said about over-reliance on one predictive model than another, but there are people who say that there's no proof that this is a brain disease, and the only reason that they want you to think that is because then we can get more pills out there for it. So in your work, how are you seeing people combat some of these myths and some of these harmful stereotypes? Well, I mean, so just to take the brain disease as an example, I mean, I, I kind of shy away even from using that terminology because it's so easy, like you said, for some people to combat it. And instead, what I think a lot of scholars are, are doing now and the way I describe addiction in my book is a biopsychosocial condition, right? So there's elements of all of the above. And what that means is that, you know, in practice, you may need to address all components, the, the biopsychosocial, and that you know, intuitively makes sense, but it doesn't mean that the brain is irrelevant or that the bio element is irrelevant. In fact, what I would argue is that, you know, the bio element is so important that addressing it with the medication and stabilizing the physiological elements of addiction, the cravings, the withdrawal symptoms, for example, that then leads to the stability that allows people to work through any psychological or, or social issues that they may have. Whereas if you just kind of take the biological element out of the picture and just pretend it's purely psychosocial, for some people, maybe that'll work. But for a lot of people, then you're not addressing the very real physiological issue of, of cravings and withdrawal symptoms. And that's a real problem and it's going to lead to relapse. So I think the answer really is to address all three, but you know, really emphasize that this bio element is very real. So I, I, I again, I completely agree with you. And, and I think this is one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you. And I think that that opinion is growing. It, what, what was worried me and continues to worry me, even though it's now shrinking a little bit, is this over-reliance on one particular model instead of, as you put it, sort of a, a combination of things. I've always chalked that up to our... our um, the fact that we live in a society that very much likes black and white thinking, something is either X or Y, it's black or white, whatever, it is from, sure. from your experience, and obviously you're coming at this from a much more scientific method, is there a different explanation for that? Or is that, is that something that you also agree with? Um, so the explanation for why there is this, you know, one way or the highway, I mean, I think in addiction, a lot of it comes 
down to the history of addiction treatment, you know, for a hundred years, we really stigmatized over a hundred years addiction in the U.S. and the addiction treatment sector became its own isolated treatment sector that was really dominated by 12-step models. And the 12-step model actually, you know, on its face calls addiction a disease and you are addressing this disease. And so, um, you know, I think there actually is one of the roots um, for this idea that it's, you know, a, a disease model um, of the brain, in fact, comes from AA. Uh, and then you, years later, decades later, you start getting research that actually shows how the brain is affected. And so that further cements the idea that it's a brain disease. But when you're only talking about it as a brain disease, then those people, whether they're researchers or, you know, just, you know, non-researchers who've seen also the psychological and social issues, they start to get concerned and they say, well, but what about these other issues? What about the psychological elements, the social elements? And, you know, they, I think sometimes then um, have started to see it as one versus the other. It's either this brain disease model that, you know, in some ways started with AA and then was really promoted by um, federal agencies and researchers, or it's this opposite thing of a social or psychological condition. And what really needs to happen, as I was saying earlier, is this combination of all three and saying that there's three elements, um, typically, let's say, for some people, maybe it isn't even all three. For some people, maybe it's just one. Maybe for some people, it's two. But from a treatment perspective, it makes a lot of sense to just kind of from the get-go think to ourselves, well, let's offer treatments that affect all three, the bio, the psycho, and the social, and then depending on the needs of the individual, adjust as necessary. So let's go specifically towards MAT, um, a medically assisted treatment. Overall, if you throw out some of the ones that are clearly um, sort of corrupted or, or, or political in nature, they all say that MAT is one of the more, if not the more successful models what um or, or treatment methods i should say can you kind of put the put that in perspective what what is the data that you have seen in terms of success rates for people on mat it is crystal clear that mat is the gold standard i mean that's the phrasing used by the government at this point i mean the federal government which is not a uh you know a body that uses these kinds of terminologies loosely. It's the phrasing that's used by the World Health Organization. Methadone and buprenorphine are considered essential medicines by the World Health Organization that should be made freely or inexpensively available in the entire world. Um, they are such critical medications that we're starting to see lawsuits uh, with respect to the Americans uh, with Disabilities Act when people in jails or prisons aren't given access. I mean, this is really, really, really well studied medications, at least methadone and buprenorphine. Now, Vivitrol, which is a, a form of naltrexone, slightly different story because it's a more recent medication and we have fewer studies and there's some potential issues there, but methadone and buprenorphine are very, very well studied. And just to put this in perspective, what I mean by very well studied, not only do we have individual studies, we then have systematic reviews, meaning we combine all of these and look across all the studies. And then we have meta-analyses, which is like a third level of studies where you go across all the studies. We look at um, what do they say together? You know, can we almost like aggregate the results of all these studies? What are they saying? 
we have studies comparing the medications to each other. We have studies comparing the medications to just counseling, studies comparing the medications to placebos, studies comparing the medications to going to a residential rehab center, studies in the criminal justice system, studies you know, in the community. I mean, it's very, very clear that MAT is very effective. Um, now, what becomes confusing for people is when you say that it's very effective, or in fact, I would definitively say that it's the most effective because we have studies that have compared it across all different populations and compared to other treatments. What confuses people is that's not the same thing as saying it will work 100% of the time, right? What we're saying is if you have, let's say, seven options on the table, study after study after study after study for decades now is saying this is the most effective of those seven options. What that doesn't mean, though, is it will work for everyone 100% of the time. Well, you are very clearly incredibly knowledgeable about this subject, which, of course, leads into your recent work and what, what uh, sort of made me aware of your work. So let's talk about the book. In 2013, I, I started doing my dissertation looking at the legal and, and social barriers to MAT, looked at that more in my postdoc, looked at it, and still am looking at it as an assistant professor. But I also, in the book, look at the health services side. So not just, you know, what are the laws that have led to this undersupply of treatment using things like methadone and buprenorphine and also naltrexone and the social stigma, which is the main social issue, but even just our healthcare system as a whole, this isolation of addiction treatment from the mainstream medicine world, you know, the fact that your primary care physician isn't your main addiction treatment provider, but they provide antidepressants and mental health issue treatment. Um, so I, I look a lot at the health services side. And then the fourth area that I look at is the criminal justice system, which is a very strange amalgamation of all of the above, right? Obviously, the law and stigma plays into it, but it, it almost has its own health service system, so to speak. And finally, I conclude the book with uh, a look at foreign nations, a, a couple of nations just as examples of other types of policies, because I think what often happens is we go on a, a path that is called path dependency. This is actually terminologies by um, policy scholars. And the idea is that you set up, whether it's a healthcare system or a law, and you just continue down that path indefinitely, even if the initial setup of it wasn't a good idea, even if it was problematic. But you just do that because it's easier, because you have momentum going in that direction, because your infrastructure, your funding has already just been funneled into it. And it's, you know, I think a reminder to look at other countries and see, well, they started on different paths and how does it look over there if you want to access methadone treatment, for example? So that's how the, the book concludes, is looking at those other models just to remind us that the way it is in the U.S., you know, it's not, uh, you know, a heaven-sent model. Like, we can, in practice, actually change things here to look in, um, look very different. You know, there are people who say, oh, I, I fully support this. This is a great idea. I obviously want to help everyone. Just don't put it you know, don't put it near my house. Um, there is a, a really well-known, you know, addiction advocate down here. I'm, I'm in South Carolina and he's pushing for 
sort of addiction services to just be rolled back into medical services. Sort of, you know, you want your addiction treatment, you go to your doctor's office like you would anything else. It sounds like that's what you are touching on as a way to avoid or, or sort of finally get rid of that not in my backyard syndrome. Absolutely. I mean, and in fact, one of the kind of um, threads, I would say, of my book is that addiction treatment needs to be mainstream. It needs to be thought of as a mainstream medical condition with a mainstream treatment. And for far, far too long, it has been totally isolated in the U.S. And it's actually very interesting why and very sad why, just to give you a little bit of context, because it then implies to know this context what the solution might be. If you look back a hundred years, you know, we had actually three phases of opioid crises, right? We've got the current one. We had one around the Vietnam War era, which led actually to the, you know, war on drugs proclamation. And then we actually had one following the civil war because um, morphine was prescribed on the battlefield. And then after that was just kind of handed out in a way like candy, even to middle-class women with menstrual cramps, for example. We've actually gone through lots of of opioid addiction. Following the Civil War era, uh, the U.S. had its first struggle with how to deal with addiction. And at the time, and unfortunately still to this day, it was very, very stigmatized. And so what ended up happening is that even mental health hospitals would not accept people with addiction because they would claim that these people with addiction would morally infect the mental health patients, these, you know, pure, innocent mental health patients, these awful addiction patients can't let them mix, right? So really the people with addiction had nowhere to go. And that's, you know, where you end up getting this very fertile ground for the development of uh, things like AA and their predecessors because there there was no other option. And um, so I think it's a real problem that it's so isolated and it's not the addiction treatment forces uh, own fault, right? It all goes back to that stigma a hundred years ago where they just weren't let into the mainstream medical world. But I think enough time has passed that these no longer should be separate industries, right? They should, it should be just one unified medical system. If you could, one lesson that you wish that people listening could, could take away from this, what would it be? I would say that the evidence is crystal clear that MAT, especially methadone and buprenorphine are the most effective treatment options on the table for opioid use disorder. That doesn't mean they're a magic bullet. It doesn't mean they will work for everyone perfectly. But if you lay out all the options on the table, we have by far the strongest evidence base for those two treatments. So with that in mind, it's actually not only problematic, but unethical to limit access to those treatments, whether that is from a criminal justice perspective or, you know, in the local rehab center. It is at this point in time, the evidence base is so strong that it's actually unethical to not let people use those treatments or give them access to treatment or facilitate access to those treatments because we have no doubt that they save lives. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. 
They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right. We've made it to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed that. I really think that it's information that everyone should know. And and let me tell you why. If somebody tells you that they're struggling with a substance misuse issue, my guess is one of the first things that you're going to say is, you know, have you been to, have you tried treatment or, or something along those lines, right? And uh, this may not be you. You may be listening like, well, Jay, I already know about MAT. I already know about progressive thinking around substance misuse. But the average person, when they say treatment, they mean 12-step. They mean AANA, whatever the case is. And, and that's not okay, not because those don't help people, but because that shouldn't be the only thing. So if this was a niche, if um, you have lupus, I don't know what you do for lupus. I'm not going to go look it up. I, 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 I don't know. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the show House, and as House says, it's never lupus. But no one's going to suggest to you, oh, well, here's the treatment. You know what I mean? But if you are struggling with a substance misuse issue, someone is going to suggest that you go to 12-step or you get sober or whatever the case is. We need to get over that. It just flat out, we need to get over that. So I recommend do your research on MAT, on harm reduction, search harm reduction. Like that's the biggest thing you can take away from this harm reduction models of treatment for substance misuse issues. Educate yourself if you want to go beyond that, which I recommend you do. I really love this book. And it's kind of like Tessie. Remember Tessie Castillo? I was raving about her book. This is similar where I am pacing myself as I read it because I love it that much and I don't want it to end. So check out The Opioid Fix, America's Addiction Crisis and the Solution They Don't Want You to Have by Barbara Andraka Christou, a.k.a. Basha, 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 excuse me, Basha. And, and there is a link in the show notes. Also, another quick plug, there's a link in the show notes to uh, my birthday call out for action on the... Ending the War on Drugs, um, check that out. Yeah, from, the, from the time that I recorded the intro to now, it's gaining some momentum, which makes me super happy. I'll be honest, when I first put it up, there was like nothing. And then I was like, oh shit, like no one's going to donate to this thing. I'm going to be on the hook for donating $10,000, and that's a lot of money. But that's not the case. So check it out, donate. We're going to raise a lot of money together, and it's going to be awesome. Again... Sorry about the audio quality. That is going to get better. That's my promise from this episode. Without further ado, we are going to go into the choose your card. There they are. Actually, it's about half the deck. I dropped the other half right as I started to record this, and I haven't picked them up. So that's okay. 
as I said early in the intro, there is a quick shout out for Black Lives Matter. This is, as always, brought to you by Blurt. They're amazing. This is their 54 Reasons Why You Matter pack. And I chose this on purpose today. I did not choose the card. I'm going to choose it right now. But I chose the pack on purpose because this is so important to me. Black Lives Matter is so important to me. Look, the you matter as a person, but our lives collectively will not matter until Black Lives Matter. It's just that easy. As a collective, you know, I tweeted earlier about my birthday thing, and I put, you know, this is why we need to support this, because ending the war on drugs is a direct blow to racism. I mean, it's just, it's like a one-to-one. Like, it, the war on drugs is anti-black. It is anti-communities of color, brown and black Americans. And I said, you know, our lives won't matter until Black Lives Matter. And this white dude jumped on and was like, no, 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 dude. All lives won't matter until Black Lives Matter. My life, our lives, or some shit, matter already. And I was like, yeah, I know, but that's not the point. And so I responded with, I'm glad to see we're on the same side here. You know what I mean? Because I was like, man, I'm not going to get into a war of words with you over <laughs> the way I phrase that. And I also, I'm, I'm cool with what I said, you know. If you if if you're that defensive of you know your life matter that's cool man I, I agree with you your life does matter my life matters but our lives as a collective do not matter until Black Lives Matter so that simple fifty four reasons why you matter here it is because you've gotten through tough times before and you will absolutely do so again because you've gotten through tough times before and you will absolutely do so again that is your reason why you matter today that's a great one. But yeah, I mean, on a personal level, yeah, you've been through, I mean, that's literally what this podcast is about. Like, I was at the lowest a human being can be. And and I I mean that as someone who's lived through suicide attempts, like, that is the the lowest that you can be when I tried to end it twice and uh, overdosed and, and you know, hit a rock bottom moment. I mean, that is the lowest you you can get. And I did come back and I'm came back better and I, I like who I am now and I didn't back then. So overall, yeah, you've been there before you can get through it. That's why you matter. Um, I'm not going to put the cards away because I'm going to pick these up as soon as I'm done recording. Here is your good deed for this week. Go donate to my thing. Right, it's that easy. Go donate. It's it's in the it's in the show notes. Go donate. I say in the call to action, five dollars, fifty dollars, you know, five hundred, whatever you want to give. It all makes a difference, and we're gonna hit that goal because I'm I'm gonna make up for it. Whatever we don't, like, I it, it's gonna happen. So this isn't like you saying, okay, I'm gonna donate to this, and maybe maybe they'll get there. No, no, no. This is you donating to a campaign that is going to be successful. Go donate in the show notes. You can also find me on social media, um, you know, Jay Schiffman on LinkedIn or, or Facebook, uh, JB Schiffman. Actually, scratch that. I have a new Twitter for just this work. It's C-Y-S underscore J, choose your struggle underscore J. That's the new Twitter. Uh, that's also, uh, choose your struggle has its own page on Facebook now. You can find that. Instagram, the next Schiffman. Just going to keep using my personal one and my website, jshiffman.com. But most importantly, keep sharing the show. A couple of you reached out to say you did so. I love it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Share the show. If you listen on iTunes, rate and review, all that kind of stuff. 
but donate. That's that's your good deed for today. And let's together take a step towards ending the war on drugs. I love you all. Choose your struggle.